You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Trouble Is. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you are with us this morning. We are starting a new series here uh, this Sunday. So if you would open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. That's the Gospel of Luke. Today we're starting a new series called The Trouble Is. The Trouble Is. Okay, and so for six weeks we are going to be addressing some of the biggest, toughest kind of questions that people have, the biggest challenges that people present about Christianity, and the things that people struggle with. You know, people who, maybe you are a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian, you say, well, you know, this is for me a big hurdle in embracing Christianity. And so we want to address some of those things, and we want to have the opportunity to respond to that and speak into those things. And our hope is that by doing this, we might actually remove some of those boundaries or some of those barriers that the people create or maybe even show that they're not really barriers in the way that people thought they were and hopefully that will help people to embrace Christianity wholeheartedly and embrace Jesus and put their faith in him that's our hope so let's begin this morning by reading our text which comes from the gospel of Luke chapter 1 verse 1 inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your word that you speak to us, that you care about us enough to communicate to us and reveal yourself to us. Lord, we pray that this morning as we study your word and as we study about your word, Lord, that you would build within us a sense of confidence and trust. And Lord, that we do pray that you would answer some of the questions that maybe some of us have or have heard or struggle with. So Lord, we ask that you do a good work in our midst this morning. Uh, do a deep work that goes just beyond, uh, goes beyond just our minds. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we here at Whitefields, we like to study the Bible. That's usually how we study the Bible on Sundays is that we go through entire books of the Bible at a time. So we just finished a study in which we went through the letter to the Hebrews, a book in the New Testament. And in a couple weeks, once we're done with this series, we're going to start up and we're going to study a new book of the Bible, another one, because that's what we like to do. We're Bible people. We love to study the Bible. We believe that God speaks in the Bible and we want to hear it and learn it and, and all of these things. But if some of you hear that and, you, you know, we say, hey, we're going to study the Bible then some of you will respond and say, great, that's exactly what I want to do. But other people might respond and say, well, wait a minute, before we do that, I have a couple questions. Like, maybe shouldn't we answer some questions before we do that, really? Like, how do we know we can even trust what this book says? I mean, this thing is like thousands of years old. Like, how do we know it hasn't been changed and manipulated and altered over time? How do we know it hasn't been doctored from the way it was originally formed? How do we know it even tells the truth? Like, how do we know that the things it says are even true at all? And even if it is, hasn't the Bible been used in history as a tool of oppression, especially to oppress women and slaves and minorities and and all kinds of people? And so how do we know that these things are even true? How do we know we can even trust this book before we get into studying it? And maybe there's some of you who struggle with those same questions, or maybe there are people you know who have voiced similar questions to those. 
earlier this year, I took a poll on my website, nickkady.org, if you ever want to check it out. And I got a ton of response. The, the poll I did was just very kind of informal thing. I put it up there. And I just got a ton of response from people, even people all over the world. And um, I asked them, what are the biggest hurdles for you when it comes to Christianity? What are the things that are the hardest for you in embracing Christianity? What create the biggest difficulties? And I got a lot of responses, both from Christians and from people who are not Christians. And I got a lot of people, because I put on there, you know, I'm not sure where I'm at. And so we had a lot of people who responded and said, honestly, I don't even know where I'm at. I don't know if I'm a Christian or what I believe. or I, I don't know. And here's what I learned by taking this poll. Number one, I learned that there are people who want to believe and trust in Jesus. And maybe they would even call themselves Christians. And yet they have some honest, sincere questions or even doubts. And maybe that describes some of you in here today. You're like, hey, I'm here. I'm a Christian. But honestly, I do have a couple questions that I still haven't sorted out. And, and they want, these people want answers to these questions so that they can be confident that what they believe is true. I mean, if you're going to commit your life to something, it's, it's worth knowing if it's true or not. And secondly, here's the other thing I learned, that many people who say that they aren't Christians, the things that they say keep them from being Christians or keep them from embracing Christianity are oftentimes things that there are actually really, really good answers to that, that a lot of us can answer. And if those people are open to hearing responses and answers to the questions that they have, well, then maybe they'll discover that the things that they consider barriers to believing are not actually barriers at all. And, and that's what happened, for example, to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford University, and he was an avowed atheist. But he met other professors also at Oxford University, professors who were higher up than him and more educated than him. And they began to dialogue with him, and they began to walk with him. They literally would go on walks, and they would answer his questions about Jesus and about the Bible. And after a while, he realized that the things which he thought were barriers to believing were were no longer barriers. They were removed, and he became a follower of Jesus. So here are the topics we're going to be looking at. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, the trouble is that Christians are hypocrites. Then we're going to talk about how the trouble is that science disproves God and the Bible. That's what some people would say. April 28th, we're going to be looking at the Christ myth. If you're not sure what that is, that is kind of the claim that Christianity has borrowed or ripped off ideas from other ancient myths and religions. If you've ever heard of the Zeitgeist movie on, on YouTube, that's what we're going to be talking about. May 6th, we're going to be talking about the trouble is suffering and evil. If there is a God who can do anything, then why does he allow good people to suffer? Why does he allow evil things to take place in the world? And some people would conclude that if there's evil in the world, then either there is no God or he's not a good God. So we're going to talk about that. And then the, the next one, the final one, we're going to talk about this. The trouble is exclusivity and hell, right? People saying, I can't accept the idea that Christianity is the only way to believe and that a loving God would send people to hell because they don't believe what he told them to believe. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And what I want you to do is mark down those dates and maybe there's somebody you know or maybe you yourself, you're like, that's the one I struggle with. Or maybe there's somebody you know who needs to be here for one of those. I want you to invite them. We're also going to have all this up online and you can share it online. We'd love for you to do that. So when it comes to faith, there are a lot of people who think that faith is not about facts. I just read an article this past week about that very thing. It was somebody, you know, just kind of taking it for granted that, well, you know, that's faith and faith isn't about facts. Well, are you sure? You see, um, for example, there's a popular atheist blogger, and this is what he wrote 
Uh, it's a quote from him. He says, if you tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt makes you invisible, then he will ask you for some evidence. But if you tell him that the book that he keeps by his bedside was written by an invisible deity, then he will require no evidence whatsoever. My question is, is that true? Do Christians really just blindly believe things without any evidence? And in my experience, the answer is no. You know, I, I've studied the Bible at the university level. I'm currently in grad school right now studying Christianity and the Bible. And I'll tell you this. I know some really smart people who believe the Bible. And they don't believe it blindly. They don't believe it because, you know, somebody told them to and they said, all right. You know, it's, the reason they believe it is because of the overwhelming evidence in support of it. And I just... Like I said, this is the tip of the iceberg. I want to give you some of those things and answer some of those questions today. Here's what I wholeheartedly believe. That Christianity stands up to intellectual scrutiny. Christianity stands up to intellectual scrutiny. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you walk in here or when you open your Bible. And I guarantee you this. The more you look into the evidence, the more you will see that the evidence actually supports the Bible and supports Christianity. And so we're going to look at some of that. The passage we just read is from the Gospel of Luke. It's the opening section of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the guy who wrote this book, he was a medical doctor and a historian. He was a scholar in his day. He was a medical doctor and a historian. He was a highly educated person. And here's how he opens the events of Jesus' life, his account of them in this letter. He says, first of all, many people, in verse 1, have set out to write accounts about the events that have taken place among us. He says, just as those who were eyewitnesses have passed that information on to us. In other words, when Jesus came, obviously it made quite a stir. There were tons of people who saw Jesus, who were eyewitness to the things that he did and the things that he said. And some people had started writing those things down because of course you would do that. You would want to make a record. This was a very important person who made quite a stir. Of course you would make a record of it. And so Luke says, you know, there, there are all these different accounts of people writing about what they saw Jesus do or what they heard Jesus say. So he says in verse 3, it seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly account. An orderly account. So what he's saying is he's, he's like an investigative journalist, right? He's taking, well, this person wrote this thing. This is what they said they saw. This is what this person says they heard Jesus do. So he goes around. And what he's claiming here is accuracy. He's claiming accuracy. What he's saying is a lot of people who saw things and, and have documented them or who are still alive, and you can just ask them. And so like an investigative journalist, he went around interviewed people, talked to them, read the things they wrote, and he compiled them all together into one comprehensive and authoritative account of, of Jesus and the things that happened with Jesus and his disciples. And look at who he addresses this letter to. He says in verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. Now, who was Theophilus? Well, we're not exactly sure, right? There's some people who believe it was an actual person, Right, the most excellent, it was a title that you would use to speak to a dignitary. So for example, like we say to the Queen of England, we call her Your Majesty. Or we talk to a judge and we say Your Highness. In those days, you would say most excellent would be for a dignitary. So there's a very good possibility this was written for a dignitary. But there's another possibility, and that is that, see, the, the name Theophilus literally means lover of God. Theophilus, Theophilus, lover of God. And so some people think that this is a pseudonym for the Christian church. And he's saying, I'm writing this for all Christians to read. So that, why? Look at what he says in verse 4. So that you may have certainty. Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So that is the goal of his letter. And it's the goal of what we're talking about today. That you might have certainty. That you might have confidence. That what you've heard about Jesus, when you read your Bible, 
that it's accurate, that you can actually trust it. So let's talk about that first. Why does it matter if the Bible's accurate or not? Some people might say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. We just believe in Jesus and, and that's all that matters. Well, does it matter that the Bible's accurate? I would say yes. Think about it this way. If you say to me, Nick, when I think about you, I like to think of you as a Italian plumber from the Bronx. I'd say, well, that's, that's beautiful, except it's not connected to reality because there's nothing wrong with being an Italian plumber from the Bronx. It's just not who I am. That, that's actually not who I am. Uh, if you want to know who I am, I would be very happy to tell you, but you can't just make up whatever you want. I mean, you can. It's a free country. You can believe. You're free to believe whatever you want. But why would you want to believe something that's not true? That just seems ridiculous. Now, some people might say, well, because it makes me feel good to think about you like that way. Well, okay. It might make you feel good. It might be therapeutic, but it's not connected to reality. And so if you want to not be connected to reality, then go ahead and think whatever you want. But here's the thing. Think about this with God then. If there is a God and you want to know who he actually is, then you can't just make it up. Like you can't just say, well, I like to imagine that God's like this. No, you, you can't do that. You, you have to have some kind of objective thing that tells you, okay, this is God, this is what he's like, this is what he's not like. That's what the Bible claims to be. The Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to humankind. And either it is or it isn't. Either it is or it isn't. But that's why it matters, okay? So the Bible tells us who God is. It also tells us what God wants from us. Now, personally, I think it makes logical sense. This makes logical sense. If there's a God who went to the trouble of creating us, then probably he would want to communicate with us, tell us who he is, what he wants from us, why he made us, and, and what the goal of life is. And, and if he was going to communicate with us, well, then really writing would be the best medium because in writing, you have a record. So like when we write a contract, we make a deal with somebody and we're serious about it, we say, well, let's put it in writing. Why? Because when you write something, you have a record and you can see if that if it has been changed over time and we're going to talk about that in a minute as well so the bible gives us also what we would call a worldview a worldview so the worldview is really this everybody has these big questions in life big questions about what is life uh, about so here's some of the big questions we ask how did we get here what are the things that are really important and why are things the way they are Especially things that are wrong. Why are the things that are wrong? Why are they like that? And then, in addition to that, and really one of the most important questions, what is the solution? What is the fix? How do we fix the things that are wrong? And the way that you answer those questions forms what we call your worldview. And the Bible gives us very clear answers to those questions. Now, perhaps most importantly, what the Bible gives us is God's plan of salvation, right? How is God going to fix what is wrong? How is God going to save us and rescue us because he loves us? That's where Jesus comes in. So the Bible is not primarily a book of moral commands, it's not primarily a book of moral commands. The Bible is rather a wonderful story about who God is and how he loves you and what he is doing to redeem the world from the suffering and evil that are in it. Are there moral commands in the Bible? Absolutely. But they are all tied to the character of God. They're all tied to the character of God. And it's really important. They're there for our benefit. In, in other words, they're also there to show us this. They're also there to show us that we have fallen short. So they, they're there to help us realize and recognize where we have fallen short and how much we need a Savior, Jesus, that God has sent for us. So if I tell you, for example, you need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And you say to me, well, 
says who? And I say, well, the Bible. And you say, well, how do I know that I can even believe what the Bible says? And that's why it matters whether or not we can trust the Bible. Okay, so let's consider some of the claims that people make about the Bible. Here's, here's one. Some people make the claim that the Bible is full of contradictions. Is the Bible full of contradictions? Okay, so one of the greatest evidences or proofs of the Bible is the Bible's unique origin. Really, when you consider the origin of the Bible, it's, it's a very unique book. Let me give you some quick facts about the Bible. The Bible is not actually one book. Did you know that? The Bible is a collection of 66 books. Right? The word Bible comes from Latin. It means book. And it's actually a collection of 66 books. And these books were written over the course of 1,600 years, roughly. Uh, they were written by 40 different authors, most of whom never met each other. They were written in three different languages on three different continents. And yet, when you bring all of these different books together, they tell one coherent, unified, cohesive story. It's as if each of the writers on their own, separate from each other, was inspired by God, and they wrote their piece. And like a puzzle, when you bring all the pieces together, they form one whole picture. And, and what's amazing is that they don't contradict each other. Now, you might stop me there and say, hang on a second, Nick. Is that actually true? Is it true that the Bible doesn't contradict itself? I heard that the Bible is full of contradictions. Furthermore, you might say, well, what about all those other books? You say there's 66 in here. What about all those other books that didn't make it into the Bible that we have? How do we know that we got the right books? How do we know that we got the right story about Jesus and about all the other stuff? So first of all, let's talk about that, the first question. Um, how do we know if the Bible's full of contradictions or not? Now, someone, next time someone tells you, hey, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions, you should ask them, well, please show me one. Ask them to show you one. Um, because there are really only about 10 or so apparent contradictions. And I, I stress the fact that they are apparent contradictions because there are really simple answers to these, the, these apparent contradictions, which show that they aren't actually contradictions at all. I'm going to show you three of them now. And then, as I said, there's a link in the Bible app, and I'm going to post it on the city later on for you to read more. Okay, so here's three apparent contradictions in the Bible and I'll, I'll show you that they're not actually contradictions. Okay, number one, discrepancies in Jesus' teachings. Now, sometimes you'll read Jesus' teachings in one gospel, and then you read the same, what seems to be the same teaching in another gospel, and they're slightly different. Like, for example, in Matthew's gospel, we read about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his most famous speech that he ever gave, his Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus teaching a lot of the same things and yet Luke says that he was not on a mountain, he was on a field, like a flat place, and the things he says are a little bit different than what he says in Matthew's gospel. Or, for example, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. But when you read that same parable in Luke's gospel, it's, it's quite different, right? There's still some of the same elements involved, but it, almost the point of the parable is, is changed. Now, let me give you some examples from my, one example from my own life, right? Sometimes I get invited to speak at different churches or conferences or things like that. And a lot of times when I go and speak there, I won't write a whole new message. What I'll do is I'll, I'll take a message out that I've preached here and I'll, I'll change it a little bit. I'll, I'll tweak it and I'll rework it a bit and then I'll preach it over there. Now for them, it's the first time they've heard it, right? They don't know any better. But sometimes I bring people along with me from Whitefields and then I'll ask them other, afterwards, they'll be like, yeah, you heard that one before, haven't you? And they'll be like, yep, 
I sure have. One time I took this guy, this is like two years ago, I took this guy here from church and I was, I was preaching in Europe and so I was traveling from city to city and preaching and I preached the same message and he got to listen to me preach the same message four times. By the end of it, he could have preached that message himself. He knew it so well. Um, but, you know, so the question is this. Do you think that Jesus ever did that? Do you think that Jesus ever taught the same parable more than once to different groups of people in different places? Of course he did. He was, the Bible says that he was traveling from village to village and he would preach the gospel of the kingdom everywhere he went. And what that means is that Jesus had a core message that he taught everywhere he went. And he would have probably used a lot of the same illustrations or parables in different places when he was talking to different groups of people. I can't imagine that, you know, Jesus preaching thousands of sermons, he's not sometimes repeating some of the same material. But the thing is, he's also not reading from a script, right? He didn't have an iPad with all his notes on it that he could pull up. Let me, let me make sure I tell you that exact parable the exact same way. So there are variations in the text, but that's because Jesus was preaching some of the same material using the same parables, but in different places to different people. So when you read those variations, it's very simple. Did Jesus preach a sermon on a mountain or a sermon on the plain? Yeah, he taught both. They're just different occasions, and he used some of the same material, but it's a little bit different. Secondly, here's another apparent contradiction. Judas's death. Right, so at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 27, we read that Judas was so overcome with grief after having betrayed Jesus that he went out and he hanged himself. But then, in the, in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, we read that Judas took the money that he got from betraying Jesus and he went out and he purchased a field and he, he fell down headlong into the field and his body burst open and his guts came out. So the question is, which is true? Which one is it? Is it which one? Is, did Judas hang himself or did he fall headlong into a field and, and his body ruptured and his guts came out? Let me, let me put it to you this way. I don't think this is that difficult. Again, for example, we have this park next door, right? Now imagine after church, you decide to go to the park and cast yourself headlong into the grass. Are your guts going to come out? Probably not. You know why? Because in order for your body to burst open and your guts to come out, one of two things probably has to happen. Either you have to fall a really long distance or your body has to have decomposed. And then, you know, then it tends to do that. So the point is that it's just, if you just go throw yourself on the ground, you're not going to die or your guts will come out. So in other words, these are not contradictory accounts. They're complementary accounts. Did Judas hang himself? Yes. Did Judas fall into this field and his body burst open and his guts came out? Yes. Probably somebody cut him down because he was hanging from a tree, or the tree branch broke, or the rope broke eventually, and his body fell into the field, and his guts came out. I mean, this is obviously a complementary account, not a contradictory account. Here's, here's the last one I'll give you, and like I said, there are some others, and they all have very simple answers like this. The angels at the resurrection. In Matthew 28, it says that there was an angel who spoke to the women at the tomb. In John's gospel, it says that there were two angels at the tomb. Contradiction, right? Well, not really, because Matthew's gospel doesn't say that there were not two angels. It just says that there was an angel who spoke to Mary. Now, so Matthew's talking about what the angel talked about, and John's talking about how many angels there were. So again, complementary, not contradictory. Again, for a book that was written over the course of 1,600 years by 40 different people on three different continents in three different languages, who never got together so they could get their story straight, the fact that there are only a handful of apparent contradictions, for which there are very good answers, should actually build your confidence in the Bible as a special and unique book, which is actually of divine origin. Let's get on to our next question. How do we know that these 66 books that we have are the right ones? And didn't Constantine 
choose the books. Like he was the one who said, it's got to be these ones and not those ones. And he kept other books out because he was threatened by them. The answer is simply no. No historian believes that Constantine picked the books of the Bible. No credible scholar would ever believe that. Luke and the other books of the Bible were all written within 50 years of Jesus' resurrection. And they were recognized as scripture by the Christians at that time, right after they were written, and they were copied and distributed. For example, in 2 Peter, Peter mentions the writings of Paul and refers to them as scripture. In other words, he refers to them as holy writings, okay? Another thing that you sometimes hear people say is, well, Jesus might have been an actual person. And really, let me tell you this again, all historians, no credible historian doubts that Jesus was an actual person. But over the years, his followers, they might say, embellished those stories. So what we, when we read about Jesus doing miraculous things, these are just kind of like legends, you know, like, like Paul Bunyan that got kind of embellished over time. And, and so people say there's a difference between the Jesus of history, the historical figure, and the Jesus of faith, really the legendary figure that, that Christians believe in, who's kind of like Paul Bunyan. And the answer to that is that even if we read Luke chapter 1, what did he say there? He said, I wrote this account based on what? Based on eyewitnesses. So if I were to tell you, hey, last Sunday, Sasquatch came into church and he sat right down here in the front row, you would tell me, uh, a lot of you would be like, uh, I was here and, and no, that didn't actually happen. Or you might say, come on, Nick. I mean, there was that one guy, he was a little bit hairy, but you're really exaggerating. You're just kind of, you know, making this more than it really was. But in other words, you'd be around to call my bluff because you were here. And so these books were written within a few years of the events and the people who had seen Jesus still alive. And they could easily come back and say, uh, you know, that's really uh, an embellishment. That's really not what happened. I was there. And yet none of them did that. Now, how do we know that none of them did that? I'll give you a very simple answer, very quick. Uh, again, there's more to say on this topic, but here's one very simple answer. Because the people who made these claims suffered and died for them. And not only did they suffer and die, now you might say, there might be some foolish people out there who are willing to suffer and die for something they know is a lie. But thousands, hundreds of thousands, and to allow, allow their families, their wives and children to suffer as well? Do you think anybody would do that? Or do you think that many people would do that without somebody cracking and being like, all right, all right, fine, we just made it up, just please don't torture me. And yet nobody did. And so we can be confident that these are not embellished stories or legends that we got after the fact now let me bring this one up. What about the books that didn't make it into the Bible? Some people might be saying, hey, I heard, I read in the Da Vinci Code that there are other books that didn't get included in the Bible, and the reason they didn't get included is because Constantine was threatened by them. Well, that's, again, not true. There were other books, by the way, that didn't get included in the Bible, but here's the thing. They didn't appear until much later, literally hundreds of years later after the things that happened with Jesus. And they were rejected by the church as falsifications. Basically, falsification meaning that people were trying to pass off new or different teachings, and they tried to kind of pass them off under the guise that, oh, hey, we found this new book of the Bible, and it was hidden under this thing, and nobody knew about it, but hey, we discovered it, and so we should include it in the Bible now. Why? So they could get their teaching legitimized. 
And so to deal with this, the church had a meeting. Church leaders from all over the world. It was called the First Ecumenical Council. And at the Ecumenical Council, means that people came from the East, people came from the West, people came from Ethiopia, Africa, that area. Everybody came who was a Christian leader, and they discussed this. And one of the topics they discussed was these books. And the criteria, they had actual criteria. It wasn't just like, well, we don't like this one. The biggest criteria was this. Are these actually of apostolic origin? Are they actually of apostolic origin? The second criteria was, is there anything weird or crazy in them? And do they mesh with the other books of the Bible? And in the end, everybody agreed, everybody, that these books should not be in the Bible. Now, some of these books had obviously been written later because they have in them what we call anachronisms. And all that means is simply this. They talk about things which didn't exist at the time when they claimed to write them. So let me give you an example. If I wrote a book about Abraham Lincoln, I'd say, hey, I have some new information about Abraham Lincoln that nobody's ever heard before. And in my book, I say, okay, here's what happened. After Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, he got in his Honda Civic, drove to the airport, and caught a flight to Albuquerque, and then he did some stuff there. And you'd be like, well, are you sure? Because I don't think that they had Honda Civics and airplanes back then. And in other words, that, those are the kind of giveaways that are in these books that they were not actually written around the time of Jesus or about things that happened at the time of Jesus. They were just written later, but those people kind of missed some things. Kind of like when you watch the history movie and there's a guy wearing a, a watch in the, in the movie that's supposed to take place at the time of Jesus. So I read the Gospel of Thomas, by the way. I had to read it for school. And I'll just tell you this. It's weird. It's not like the other books of the Bible. And, and again, there are no scholars who think the Gospel of Thomas should be in the Bible. And, and I would just tell you this. If you're curious, go read it for yourself. It's available online. Uh, nothing bad will happen to you if you read it. But you'll obviously see why it was not included in the Bible, okay? The church did not get it wrong, and you can have true confidence that the scriptures we have are the ones we should have. Next, let's talk about this. The Bible uh, promotes archaic values which lead to oppression. Here's what one person who responded to the survey said. I have a hard time basing my life on a book that was written thousands of years ago by the leaders of that time. In my opinion, the Bible was and still is a tool to oppress people. What do you say to somebody like that? Here's what I would say. I seriously wonder if that person has ever actually read the Bible. Because the Bible from cover to cover is all about God redeeming us, his redeeming redemptive work, how God wants to liberate us. You can see it in the history of Israel, you see it in the prophets, you see it with Jesus. The number one theme that runs through the Bible is that God is on the side of the underdog. God is on the side of the widow and the orphan. And the sharpest criticisms that the prophets ever uttered were against the wealthy oppressors, the powerful people who oppressed the poor and took advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. If you read the Bible, you will find that it is the exact opposite of a tool for oppression. It is rather a manifesto of liberation. Now, some people would say, hey, you know these things that you talk about, like taking care of the poor or, or elevating the status of women? These aren't uniquely biblical values. These are just normal human values that everybody knows and believes and agrees on and says that they're right. And so, in other words, the Bible is just taking what people already think and saying it. So those aren't biblical things. It's just normal. 
Well, if you look at history and if you look at other cultures that haven't been as affected by Christianity, you'll see that that's not the case. See, a lot of the the fact is that our culture here in the West has been hugely shaped by the Bible and its values, and we often take that for granted. If you go to other parts of the world, or if you go back, let's say you go back 2,000 years ago, and we can do that by reading the documents which we have from those times. And what you'll find is that the vast majority of people were not egalitarian, meaning they, they did not promote the rights of women and children and minorities. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I got to tell you, that would have been a radically shocking statement for someone to read at that time, because nobody thought that way at that time. The Jews didn't think that way, and certainly the Romans didn't think that way. This was a shot against racism. It was a shot against sexism and and the subjugation of women. This was a shot against economic oppression. And again, that's not how people thought back then. Neither the Jews nor the Romans, nor any ancient society. So where did Paul get that from? He got it from Jesus and Jesus' teachings. He got it from the Bible and the ethics of the Bible. The idea that all people are created equal, no matter their gender, no matter their skin color, no matter their economic situation, no matter their physical ability or disability, that is a uniquely biblical idea. It's not found in other ancient religions and cultures. The writings of the Bible then began to spread after the time of Jesus as as people took Christianity into the whole world because Jesus sent them to. And as Christianity spread, these values began to spread and the world has become a better place because of it. So one reason for believing the Bible is that the Bible has changed the world for the better. There's a man named Rodney Stark. You can look him up, Rodney Stark. He is a professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Baylor in Texas, at Baylor University. And he took on a research project uh, early in his research. And that project led him to embrace Christianity Uh, the Christian faith, because here was his project. He wanted to investigate how has Christianity affected the cultures that it has gone into and influenced. And at the time he started this, he was not a Christian. He said that at the time he said, I would have told you it was impossible for me to believe in Christianity. So he sets out on this thing expecting to find that wherever Christianity's gone, you know, it's just caused wars and, and subjugation of, of people. And, and quite the opposite is what he discovered. What he discovered led him to embrace Christianity for himself because he discovered that Christianity was a force for good like nothing else the world had ever seen. Wherever the Christian message went and received, the culture was lifted up and improved. And, and Rodney Stark's written several books about this and how he became a Christian. The idea of, fund, of fundamental human rights, the idea of human rights, we take that for granted. We think that's just how it is. Let me tell you, that is a Christian biblical idea, the fact that there are people who have fundamental human rights. I'll give you another example. In the first century Roman Empire, we have a document. You can read it for yourself. It's a letter of a man writing to his wife. And it starts out beautifully. You know, he says, My sweet wife, don't worry about me. I'm staying longer to work. I'll be home soon. And I'm sending you money. And you read that and you say, wow, what a stand-up guy. What a decent guy this is. He's a good man. I mean, he's, he's a pagan, but look at him. He loves his wife. He's working hard. He's sending home money. And she's pregnant. So he goes on in this letter and he says, I pray all the time to this pagan deity that he will help you get through this pregnancy. And you're like, man, you know what? Look, he's a pagan, but look, he spiritually prays. He's just a good man. And then at the end of the letter, he says this. If the child is a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it out. That was the attitude in antiquity. 
And, and for Christians, every child was a wanted child. Because see, the Bible teaches that every human being is made in the image of God. See, before Christian influence came into the world, they would often abandon babies. If they were unwanted, they would just leave them to die. And in what's now Nigeria, even within the last uh, 150 years, it was common practice that they believed twins were cursed. And so they would literally kill twins because they thought that they were cursed. They would kill them in infancy. You see, because abortion was dangerous, they wouldn't do it. What they would do is if a child was unwanted because it was sick or deformed or, God forbid, a girl, they, they would throw it out in the trash and leave it to die. And what Christians began to do is that they would come and they would gather up these babies and they would adopt them and they would raise them as their own children. It's because the Bible tells us that that is what God has done for us. He rescued us from the trash heap. That's the gospel. He rescued us from the trash heap. He saved us and he made us his children. That's the gospel. And that's what Christians began to do, literally. And a few things that Christians uh, can, came up with. They came up with hospitals, public education, universities, because people, the Bible taught that people have value and God loves them. And so Christians said, well, then, then people deserve to be nurtured. They deserve to be educated and cared for. And you shouldn't only care for your people, your family, the people close to you. You should also care for strangers. That's a radical concept. It comes straight from the Bible. And if you look at the facts, you see that the Bible was not a tool of oppression, but it has been a tool of liberation throughout the world to make the world better. And here's the last one we'll end with, and that's this. People will say the Bible has been changed and altered throughout history by people in power. They say the Bible has been mishandled, and its original message and content has been changed or lost or manipulated. And historians would actually tell you, no. People who know these things would tell you that the Bible is actually the most historically reliable and credible document from antiquity. Now you say, well, of course you're going to say that, Nick. Give me some proof. Okay, here's your proof. You want to know? Greek scholars that have studies of ancient writings. The closest thing we have to the Bible, most attested document from ancient Greece from about the same time is the Odyssey and the Iliad, if you read those in school. Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. And here's, here's some math for you. Manuscripts. We have 200 ancient manuscripts from the Odyssey and the Iliad. Now compare that with the New Testament. We have 5,800. Like it's not even close. Now maybe you say, what about the Old Testament? Up until the 20th century, the oldest manuscripts we had from the Old Testament were not very old. So it was hard to prove that they hadn't actually been changed over time. But in 1946, there were some kids in the Middle East, and they were throwing rocks into a cave which was on the side of a cliff. And they heard a crash when they threw one of these rocks. And that crash led to the most important, most significant archaeological discovery of the 20th century, which was the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are ancient copies of the Old Testament texts, and what they showed is that these were stored in this arid desert, so they didn't, you know, get ruined, and they were stored for thousands of years. And what the Dead Sea Scrolls show us is that the Old Testament has not been altered at all. In other words, when you read your Bible and you open up the Old Testament, you're reading the same Old Testament that somebody thousands of years ago also read. By the way, Dead Sea Scrolls are in Denver right now. You should all go see them. It's incredible. We're actually going to try and set up something with the church so we get a big group discount. So look for that on the city. There was a, a class of priests for the Jews called the scribes. You read about them in the New Testament. It talks about the Pharisees and the scribes. Who were the scribes? They were a class of priests and their whole job was to make handwritten copies of the Bible, the Old Testament. And it was an extremely tedious process. So when one scribe was writing and making a copy, two scribes would be looking over his shoulder and watching him and making sure he didn't make any errors. And if he did, even a single letter, then they would fix it and they would all three sign it. 
Okay, so, so how can we be sure, for example, that the Gospel of Luke, that this is actually what Luke wrote, and it's not, you know, it hasn't been changed over time? Here's the estimation that they would give you on these documents. You know, 5,800 manuscripts. How much of them are the same and how much are different, are variants, we call them? 99.4%. 99.4% of everything they wrote is identical in those 5,800 uh, documents. Now you say, wow, I don't know. That's a lot, but still, 0.6%. I mean, that's, that's not nothing. Now, those are what you call textual variants. And literally, what that is, the, I mentioned how they would make an error and then they would all sign it. That's part of that. That's included in that. In other words, those aren't mistakes. They're corrected mistakes. Like when you write your name wrong on a check and then you cross it out and then you put your initials above it, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're also talking about sometimes it's a comma. Sometimes it's that in one manuscript it says Jesus, in another it says the Lord Jesus. These are the kind of things that we're talking about that make up that 0.6% of variance. And again, another one was that no two scribes made the same mistake, you know, because they, they all made different mistakes. And so it's very easy to just take all the documents, put them all side by side, and, and to see what it was supposed to say. And in the end of the day, there are really only 10 to 12 true discrepancies between manuscripts. And here's the thing. They're not secrets. Did you know that if you read your Bible right now and you read those footnotes, those things at the small print at the bottom, they'll actually tell you in those texts, okay, well, this one is not included in some documents. Some documents put it this way. They're not secrets. We, we are very honest about them, and here's why. Because none of them, not a single one of those 10 to 12, change your theology at all. Okay, so when you open up your Bible, here's my point. You can be absolutely true that it has not been changed or altered, that it's from its original writings. And the manuscripts prove that. And here's what I'll leave you with. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg. There's so much evidence if you look into it. But here's the thing I want you to know. Simply knowing the fact that the Bible is trustworthy, that's not going to do you any good. Just knowing that the Bible is trustworthy isn't going to do you any good unless you actually read it. Okay, you actually have to read it. And, and not just read it. It's even just reading it. I don't know if that will do any good if you don't take it to heart. Take its message to heart when you read it. I was a junior in high school. I started reading the Bible. I would drive to Stanley Lake in Westminster after school every day. And I would read the Bible in my car in the parking lot. And as I did that, I read about Jesus. And I read about what he did. And I took that message to heart. And I believed that good news. That it was good news for me. That God does love me. And he sent Jesus to die for me. To take my sins on himself. So I could be forgiven and liberated. And receive a whole new life. And a new identity and a new future. And I embraced Jesus as my savior. I surrendered my life to God. Made him my Lord. And as I did that. Incredible change took place in my life. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I've given you a few reasons today to know that the Bible's trustworthy. But what are you going to do with it? That's my question for you today. What are you going to do with it? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Read the Bible and confidently put your trust in its message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you do that, you will be transformed. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all of these evidences that we can actually believe that what it says is true. And Lord, I pray for that would be true for us today. That all of this information would not just stay in our heads, Lord, that it would cause us to open your word, to read it for ourselves, to take its message to heart, and to be transformed. Lord, I pray for everyone in here. If there's anyone who says, I have not put my faith in Jesus, but I need to. Lord, I pray that today would be the day when they put down their yes and say, yes, I believe, and yes, I trust. In Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you rescued us from the garbage heap and made us your children. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.